0: Hello, hello, hello. You have just entered the Kindness Think Tank, and I'm your host, Cole Baker Bagwell. Every week, I'll be sharing stories and having conversations with amazing people from around the world who are all working to bring kindness yes, kindness into the forefront of their lives, their communities, and their work with the purpose of elevating the experience that we have in this big world that we share. So now it's time to pop in your earbuds. Clear a little space in your mind, and let's go. So you have a practice that you've been holding very dear to your heart since 1974. Tell me about that.
1: Well, I've been practicing transcendental meditation Since the probably the second week when I went away to um, college from Detroit, Michigan, down to Mobile, Alabama, of all places, it was just a long ways away. And I was really anxious and was really looking for some peace of mind and a way to relax a little bit and saw uh, um, some up in the student union about transcendental meditation. And I had heard about it before. I thought, well, this might be a good practice for me. So I signed up and it cost me $20 to take the course <laughs> and uh, probably the best $20 I've ever spent. But um, I've gotten such peace of mind from it. It's just been unbelievable. And it just carried me through my entire life through some very difficult times. And I've had my best thoughts when I've been meditating. And it's just really smoothed out my character and my life. And I really credit it for uh, me being alive today. I um, have very serious heart disease. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if it wasn't for um, TM to give me that relaxation and allow me to fill my mind with positive thoughts, I don't think I could have made it through all that I've made it through.
0: That's pretty incredible. So, you and I have this in common. I I don't practice transcendental meditation, but I have been practicing meditation for nearly twenty seven years now. Wow! I feel, I feel the same way about it as you do. I came to it in a similar way in that I was stressed out and anxious and experiencing a lot of dissonance in my life, and it was really a battle between my real self and. The professional self that I thought everybody wanted to see. This was in my twenties, you know. So I've sort of told on myself and told my chronological age, but I'm cool with that. Uh-huh. Um, but here's one of the things: is that I've noticed meditation has very different meanings for people here in the United States, and you know, I, I don't think it's it's as well understood as it could be because it's a fairly simple yet very powerful thing, and I find that people here in our country in particular tend to look at it as a place to go or a thing to achieve, like a destination point, right, instead of a journey. So what would you say to that?
1: I would just say it is, um, I mean, you can look at it either either way. For me, it's probably more of a destination point, but that destination is no body, um, no mind, nowhere. No thing, you know. This is where you get into that space between your head and between your thoughts, which um, can be so powerful because that's when your subconscious has a chance to pop up and give you ideas that your conscious mind can never um, come up with their own. So it just just pushing a very unique framework. That's yeah, DM is done for me, but I know other people get there from other spots.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you, I don't know that I could have navigated this last year or any other challenges that have arisen in my life without learning how to tap in in that same way. And it's hard sometimes, right, to sit with ourselves. It's very difficult, um, depending on the day, depending on what's happening in your mind and in the world around you. Sometimes it's hard, you know, to sit there because for me at least things bubble up that maybe i didn't want to see that day maybe i didn't want to acknowledge that day but but i know that there is you know there's power if you can just sit through some of the unpleasantness that arrives as well and i heard there was a man who who's written a book about meditation and his name is bob sharples and man he wrote the most beautiful thing He said, look at meditation as a way to love yourself instead of as a way to fix yourself. And I thought that was so powerful.
1: That is very, very powerful. And I would agree with that 100%. It is absolutely um, an opportunity to be very kind to yourself. Yes. I try to use my meditation time in order to fill my mind with um, positive affirmations Mm -hmm. as well. And you know, you have to love yourself before you can love anybody else. You have to be kind to yourself before you can be kind to anybody else. It just kind of flows that way. And meditation is a good, um, a good point to start to express that, that peace and kindness and love.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. And that's a perfect segue into this episode of Kindness Think Tank. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce you now. So people know, About this other cool human I'm talking with on the other end. (laughs) So folks, today we are traveling to the Peach State of Georgia, to Roswell, Georgia in particular, to talk with a very cool human being named Kevin Foster, who is the founder of Business Ethics Advisors. And I'm so happy that you joined me because you have some pretty powerful stories to tell about kindness. So thank you for being here, Kevin.
1: Well, thank you very much, Cole, for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: You're welcome. You're welcome. So before we get into the work that you do and the way that you take kindness into the world through your work, I'd like to talk a little bit about your background, the journey that you took from where you were before to where you are now as a business ethics advisor and you know, just sort of giving people some framework and context for how you arrived in this place now.
1: Okay, well, one time I was a pretty successful real estate executive um, based in Atlanta, but our company was based out of North Carolina, and that company got accused of um, some pretty bad things, mostly fraud involved in a project that they were working on in the mountains of North uh, North Carolina, and I was an officer of that company, and... When that company was accused of fraud by the North Carolina Attorney General's Office, the U.S. Attorney's Office got involved as well. So obviously the FBI got involved. And there is this legal thing called conspiracy where Mm -hmm. if you just touch the conspiracy in any way in order to promote the the conspiracy. So it could be one text, one email, one meeting that you attended, almost anything, one document that you wrote. That somehow benefits the conspiracy, you can be charged for the entire conspiracy, and the loss that they alleged was um, close to a hundred million dollars. Wow. So I was brought into this case and accused of conspiracy to commit bank fraud, and it went on for a couple of years, and then ultimately I was given a ultimatum: either I had to plead guilty, or they were going to indict me. And my attorney did not think I was going to win. He wanted a million dollars for legal fees. I already paid him $250,000 in legal fees. Wow. And that million dollars is something that I did not have. And he thought I was going to lose. And I was going to end up getting sentenced to 20 to 30 years in prison. Or I had an offer on the table to plead guilty to one count, which would have been five years in prison. So that was absolutely a no-brainer. It was the best decision I ever made was to go ahead and plead guilty. Who do you have ever heard um, say that? But, you know, white-collar criminals, they face that choice every single day. It's absolutely amazing, but they do. So, um, so yeah, I pled guilty and in March of uh, 2010 in Charlotte, North Carolina. I had 18 months before I had to report. to um, to prison, which was actually a godsend. Um, They originally had given me 12 months to report, which is actually pretty common for a white collar offender with a very low chance of um, running away. But my mother-in-law who was 98 years old at the time was living with us and she passed away that February in um, 2011. So it was really a good thing that I did not report in March 2011. So my wife would never have been able to take it. And but I ended up reporting in August 2011. That's when I started my uh, my journey through through prison. And my wife actually drove me up to from Atlanta all the way up to Butner, North Carolina, and I walked in the front gates of, of the prison. <laughs>
0: Oh, my gosh. yeah, just like,
1: um Dorothy, uh, you know, you just know you're not in Kansas anymore
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I I can't imagine what that must have felt like to take that long drive because that's about five and a half, six hours from where you are to Butner, North Carolina.
1: Yes, it is.
0: I can't believe that, you know, that you made that drive with your wife, and then she had to drop you off, knowing she wouldn't see you for quite some time. How long were you actually? In prison, Kevin.
1: I spent 37 months in prison. Wow. And two weeks after reporting to prison, I was put into solitary confinement for 28 days. And that was extremely difficult for my wife. And in any 30-day period period of time, they only allow inmates one phone call not to exceed um, either 10 or 15 minutes. That's it. I think it's 10 minutes. Not to exceed ten minutes. So you can imagine only being able to talk to a loved one one time in 30 days for 10 minutes.
0: Mm. It's
1: a very difficult situation.
0: What did you what did you learn when you were there alone by yourself for those days in solitary confinement about yourself?
1: Well, when I was um, when I was um, brought into solitary confinement, it was a totally separate building than other buildings on the on the grounds. And I was put into uh, like a holding cell and told to strip down, take all my clothes off every bit, every stitch of clothing, and was given a very skimpy um, blue coveralls to put on afterwards. It was just very humiliating. And I was in there for protective custody and they put me into a cell block where there was no one on either side of me um, and really only one other person on the whole wing there that was on the opposite side of me. And I was mad. I mean, I was madder than you could possibly believe because I knew I didn't do anything wrong in order to get thrown into what they call the hole. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's really called the shoes, um, which is um, it's a secured housing um, housing, special housing unit called the, um, the shoe, but we call it, the inmates call it the um, the hole. Um, typically, the people who are in there are, are the bad guys in prison, if you can imagine that, guys who've gotten in trouble one way or another, whether it's for fighting or for um, doing something to a guard or to another inmate. It could be almost anything that gets you thrown in there. But in my case, I was put in there for protective custody. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I shouldn't have been in there and I was being treated very, very poorly when I was in there. So I was like as mad as I could possibly be. And there was at one point in time where um, they gave me um, 20 minutes to go out into the rec yard. They call it rec yard. So I had 20 minutes to um, for recreation um, every 24 hours. And that recreation was in just imagine a, um, a racquetball court with a uh with the stone uh, with a chain link fence all the way around on all sides and all you could do is just walk around this chain link um, fence well for some reason i had two guards there that did not like me and in the area between my uh, my cell and the time we got out there one of the guards um, took me from behind, my hand, I was handcuffed from behind, and started raising the back of my arms, which made my knees buckle and I was in, fell to the ground in absolute pain. And he's just sitting there laughing. And so was the other guard. And no one else can see him because they were out of the range of the, of the, of the cameras. So it was a very, very difficult um, situation. I thought they were going to break my arms, which they did, not but it was very painful. So I went back to the cell, and this just made me more angry. So they assigned you what's called a case officer, and this case officer came down to, to see me. And when he did, I just started yelling at him, you know, get me out of here. Why haven't you got me out of here yet? I don't belong here. Just get me out of here. I started calling him names, and I was just mad. He just looked at me like I was crazy, and I was crazy. I was just a crazy man, and and he just walked away in total disgust, and I turned around, went back to my bunk, and I said to myself, Kevin, this is just not who you are. You're somebody totally different than this. You need to reframe this entire experience into something different than what you're experiencing right now. So that – put me on the mode that I was going to reframe my, that experience from the rest of the time that I was there. And I started getting back into my meditation and believe it or not, I had not meditated because I didn't even have a chair to sit down in, in that, in that cell, they had like a little stool. And then you can like lay cross, um, sit cross-legged on the bunk, but there was a upper bunk above it. So you really couldn't stretch out your upper body. Otherwise you're going to hit the upper bunk. But um, the only way that I could really meditate was to do do a slides and just um, tilt my head a little bit. I started meditating. And I was just um, going to reframe it. And I thought, well, Kevin, you know something? You would spend a fortune having a silent meditation for a weekend, (laughs) much less for 28 days. You know, what would you pay to go have a silent retreat somewhere? You know, you just couldn't do it. I mean, even if you went to a monastery, they wouldn't let you stay there for 28 days, and have no one to talk to. You just couldn't do it. You know, the other silent retreats that I have been I'm exposed to were only for like one or two days, and that was it. And here I was going to have 28 days, so I reframed the entire experience, and it was in that reframing that I was able to get away from my ego. As you can imagine, being a successful executive. And I was making a lot of money before going to prison. I mean, a lot of money. And now I had absolutely nothing, literally having nothing. And all I had was myself, my mind. I had to let go of my ego. And this was the time for me to let go of my ego, which is what I did. And being able to meditate and reframe was a very valuable experience for me. Um, in fact, um, Fast forward, after I got out, I went to the camp, and one of my other friends got thrown into the hole. And after he got out, he and I were talking about that experience. And not knowing what I had went through and reframed, I learned that he had done the exact same thing. And he goes, you know, Kevin, he says, before I leave prison, I would really like to go back there and be able to have that peace and quiet and have um, that whole experience of, um, of being alone. And lo and behold, apparently he must have attracted it because 30 <laughs> days before he was supposed to leave, he got put into um, the hole again. And I think for 60 days, he, he missed his um, out date for his prison time, which must have been very difficult. But he got that. He got his wish. Um, I never got that wish. I never went back again. Thank God I came very, very close once to going back. But, um, but I never did you know, thank God, but being able to meditate and reframe the entire experience was a very powerful act that allowed me to survive that um, um, that time. And in fact, the guy that was opposite me was a very strange looking guy. I mean, I don't mean to say it in a, ma- a mo- mean way, but he was just very, very weird looking. And every time I got up, from my bunk, he would literally jump up. And we only had this very, very small window that you can look out of. I mean, six inches wide by probably 14 inches tall. It wasn't much at all. And so I could see him. You know, he's kind of like on the corner and he could see me. And um, finally, I recognized he was probably going going through something similar to me. So I started yelling to him through the cracks of these heavy steel doors and he was able to hear me and I asked him what his name was. He told me, and I said, what are you here for? He told me he was in because he had tried to escape from the camp and, um, and he got caught and um, he was waiting to go to trial for escape and he was going to get, he was going to get sentenced. um, The additional sentence was going to be five years he already oh spent fourteen years in prison. Oh. As it turns out, I found out later he was dying of cancer, which is the reason mm. why he wanted to escape. He didn't want to die in prison, but he escaped in order to get away from that. He went made it as far as Mexico. And he was um, blown off his mouth in Mexico and someone overheard him, called the feds. They picked him up in Mexico, brought him all the way back up to North Carolina. And so I don't know whatever happened to him, but I would suppose that he ended up dying in prison, which is really, really sad. But if we're talking about kindness, you know, some, you know, I felt good that I was able to break through, you know, everything that I was feeling and reach out to this other human being and make that human contact with them because you just didn't have any other way to make human contact in that, um, in that environment.
0: Man, that story, Kevin, it blows my mind. It, I can't imagine spending one day or even an hour without my freedom, but I'm so impressed by the decision that you made for yourself to look at this as just like the ultimate silent retreat, which it's 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 pretty funny, you know, to sort of think about, yeah, you would spend a lot of money to go for three or five days, and it's absolutely true. And you took advantage of that and you really leaned into it. So do you feel like? that experience left you as a kinder and better version of yourself than you were before you went into prison
1: well I think it did it was actually um, part of the journey that I took my my prison journey which um, um, over time I went from you know my ego self to something different than my ego self you know somehow I learned how to get rid of my ego to the extent that I could have And that required a lot of work in order to let go of the ego. But it was a shift that was worth making, in my opinion. And then also it was in that the despair and loneliness of that cell that I decided that no one else should have this experience. And it was just so, so devastating for my family. And I obviously had an opportunity to meet other men whose families were well affected. You know, in in reality, the men in prison or the women in prison, they are um, they have medical attention. They get three meals a day. They have housing. Um, You know, they probably have a job, a prison job in there. But their families, their spouses trying to survive without that family member. That's where it's really difficult for. That's what that's really who suffers of the high incarceration rate that we have in the United States is not the people that's being incarcerated but it's their families who aren't being provided for. That's who Mm -hmm. really suffers.
0: So tell me about, before we move into your business that you do, because I know that your experience in prison shaped your business, and and you've just mentioned that briefly. Tell me about how you define kindness. What does that word mean to you, Kevin?
1: Kindness is, uh, to me, absolutely the one where you um, reach out to someone from your heart with genuine acts of compassion, um, generosity, um, service—you know, just being nice. What we would cons- consider just being nice, just being trustworthy with the other person, just being able to make a difference, you know, in their lives, and you know, just being being kind and just just an act just the act itself of affection or empathy, you know, that's what it really is.
0: Yeah, that's a beautiful definition. And I, I, I'm just still in that place of you telling me this story. And my heart is really heavy about that story, but I know something good came out of it. So let's talk about business ethics advisors so you went from being successful real estate guy making tons of money walking around with a big ego although meditating for a very very long while to having you know a hard left in your journey and going into prison into you know pretty remarkable and unexpected circumstances to say the least but then something shaped you in there. It was the decision the decision that you made and perhaps the experience that you had that led you to the business that you do now. So what was it? What was it that inspired you aside from, I never want anybody else to be in this place? Was there something else besides that one thought? Or was it just the care for another human being?
1: I think it's more of um, caring for others. Um... I knew, or I do know, that people can learn from my experience. And when I was in prison, I became a really big fan of Joseph Campbell, you know, the author of A Hero of a Thousand Faces and famous for The Hero's Journey. And I definitely had The Hero's Journey. And um, I would encourage anybody who doesn't know what their Hero's Journey is to look it up on Wikipedia and maybe read a little bit of Joseph Campbell but I'm not sure we have time to get into it today. But part of that journey is the return. So when someone, um, for millions of years of human existence, when um, men have, humans have taken these, um, these journeys into the wilderness and then returned to the tribe, what did they do? Well, they sat around the campfire and shared their experience with others so that other members of the tribe can learn from those experiences. So that's what I consider, um, you know, my um, my business right now is that returning to the tribe to share my experiences so that others can learn and learn from those experiences so they don't have to go through the same path that I went through.
0: That's beautiful. So talk with me about about your work, because I know that you are you going to companies and, you know, trying to prevent FBI visits. But how, does, how do ethics make business kinder, make it better?
1: Well, I'm a bigger, um, big fan of what I would call values-based ethics. This is not um, ethics based on rules as opposed to rules-based um, ethics. So most companies, and all you got to do is look at the law, but most companies have a code of conduct or an ethics code and those are all rule based. You know, you, sh- you shall not take money from um, from your vendors. You, you know, you shall um, treat um, other people fairly. Well, you know, my opinion is, is that really comes out of your own moral compass, your own moral code. That's where real ethics is based on. And you don't need to have rules because people being people will tend to take those rules and push them to the absolute limits. So somebody who has an inner moral compass and looks at it from a values-based um, standpoint of, of, again kindness, of transparency, on, um, honesty, um, fairness, those are all traits and attributes that we should all express. We all learned when we were as ki- when we were in kids, you know, but they're equally important in business. But when you practice those attributes and they fall into your normal everyday business practice, then it makes it a lot easier to avoid what I call the personal characteristics and circumstances leading to unethical or illegal behavior. So everything that I speak on is identifying those unethical um, or those individual personal characteristics and circumstances leading to unethical or illegal behavior. And if people know those red flags and know those traits, then they're more likely to, um, to avoid unethical behavior. I mean, we even take a look at the me too movement for, um, for example, sure. sexual harassment is terrible. Yeah. It's a total lack of respect for another person. It's yep. totally taken advantage of their sex. Yeah. You know, for example, for example, you know, that just doesn't need to happen in the in the business, um, in the business culture or taking advantage of a customer because, you know, something that they know uh, that they don't know. Um, For example, that's a lack of honesty and transparency. Yeah. You know, that's just not the way this world um, should work. So businesses operate. Um, to the um, to their highest good, when their employees are able to exercise all these little touch points of um, of higher of higher ethics. I mean, ethics could be not high, but I'm talking about higher ethics. You know, when we talk about ethics. I mean, the Nazis had ethics. It wouldn't I mean, ethics that you or I would want to practice. Agreed. We're talking about ethics that. Appeal to the higher good. Mm -hmm. Uh, What we want to do is, we want to appeal to the higher, the highest good, and that's that's looking beyond what's good just for us. It's looking good, not just for the company, but the good of our customers, our shareholders, our vendors, all stakeholders, society as a whole. This is what you know. Companies should strive for.
0: So, how do you think that? that worldview of things within a company changes people and then changes the way that the company takes their work out into the world to share it with their customers or vendors or whomever.
1: Well, there's no doubt doubt that those ethics need to be instilled in leaders in all levels of management, all the way up from the chairman of the board and the CEO all the way down to the customer service manager, overseeing the people who have the touch points with the customers, through every level in the organization, there's gotta be um, clear everyday examples of what these values-based ethics look like, and it's absolutely essential for the lifeblood of the company.
0: So how do you create agreement, Kevin, when I know that, you know, we can look back at 2007, 2008, when we had some very powerful people who lacked values-based ethics or really ethics at all. They created just, you know, a world of destruction for people who, you know, had saved money their whole lives. And it just, it was a global ripple of awfulness that we all experienced. So, what do you do when you go into a company and you maybe there are, you know, there's a leader, doesn't even have to be the highest level leader, but somebody in the company who has influence and power and who's not vibing in that value based ethics sort of way? How do you create agreement so that the consensus of the other folks? sort of overrides that, you know, that one or two or five or 10 people who really have a lot of power who are saying, no, we're going to do it a different way.
1: Well, I think there's probably a little bit of the carrot and the stick. And I demonstrate the, um, you know, the stick, which is this is what could, what happened to me could happen to you. And, um, you treating others um, poorly, even if it result in just a loss of your job. are you willing to be caught up in that and lose your job over it and put your family's financial well-being at risk? You know your reputation is all that you have. Are you willing to do that by you know um, engaging in an affair with a subordinate or you know, sexually um, harassing another person, whatever the case may be. Are you really willing to do that and go through the embarrassment? Is everything that you're doing today, are you proud of that? Would you get up in your church group and announce that that's what you were doing? So when you want to be able to get up in front of anybody and say, this is what I'm doing and I'm proud of what I'm doing. I'm proud of this company because everybody else in this company is doing this and I'm doing it. This is the way I live my life. So I think that, you know, that little bit of self-awareness there um, is enough for some people, but the, you know, the carrot is the inspiration. You know, I still have a um, personal belief that as humans, we want to do the right thing. And all we need to do is be, maybe be a little bit inspired by it, or, you know, maybe be nudged a little bit, but I think people overall want to do the right thing. So I think sometimes it does take other people to inspire them to do so. So I think that's what ethical leadership is all about. So I've really been honing in on ethical leadership um, lately. And I think that's the job of every leader in the organization is to raise up, you know, all the people that are below them. And if those people go up and they've had good models that essentially pulled them up through the organization. They're going to do the same with the people below them. So I think there's some inspiration that needs to needs to happen in there. And that's what I try to do.
0: So let's talk about inspiration for a second. I love that word, by the way. I don't think there is convincing. I think there is inspiring. They're really different things, right? And convincing, I'm not so sure that that actually creates change because we don't have the power to change another person. We all are in charge of changing ourselves. At least that's my worldview of things. But inspiration is different, right? Inspiration ignites something in another person that prompts them to make different decisions for themselves. So as you think about the body of work that you've done in creating ethical leaders, ethical companies, getting people on the right path, I mean, what you're really talking about is you are creating deeper humanity inside of these companies as well. Without mentioning people's names or company names, do you have a favorite story like something that really sticks out in your mind about, you know, maybe a a company you went into and you said, "Man, this place is a they're they're going to be in a world of hurt if they don't, you know, sort of get into the groove of ethical behavior, value based ethics," and then you really saw them turn around. Do you do you have anything that really sticks out in your mind that was super inspirational for you? Um.
1: You know, it's really amazing how people will come up to me and say, oh, yeah, we have this going on in our company. I'm so glad that you're um, you're here. But a lot of times people are so embarrassed by the unethical or illegal acts of um, their colleagues, they're not going to raise this specifically. They just give you the sense that it's going on and yet you're welcome to come in here and try to uh, make this a different place. So, yeah. in order to come up with a specific thing, you know, I'm not going to be. I'm not going to say specifically. I'm just going to say that I believe that overall in the business world today, there is a frustration at some level in management that there may be em- employees that are committing unethical or illegal acts. And they know that even in the top ethical companies, that men will be men, women will be women, um, humans are humans, and people fall off the wagon. They do things. And there's a frustration that you cannot have 100% compliance. You try to get that as high as you can, and it's only through constant reminders that you be able to um, get up that compliance which is a reason why I created what I call my everyday ethics videos. So I have weekly videos that are like two to three minutes long that are available to companies on a subscription basis that are on an ethics topic of the week that, um, that I speak on, just again, just for a couple of minutes, and put it out to the companies. And they're able to distribute it to their employees In order to keep ethics on the top of their minds, I think it is really important for ethics to be so ingrained into a corporation that that employees are reminded of it, not just once a year during annual um, ethics training, but um, on a regular basis. And once a week is not too often.
0: Yeah. So you're talking about don't check the box. Build the muscle. Build the ethics muscle and the habit, and the choice, and the awareness inside of these companies.
1: That's exactly right. That's Mm -hmm. exactly right.
0: So as you think about business, and you think about the future, we've got a bunch of young people coming up, as you know. A lot of Gen Z folks who, they see the world differently, and I think in many ways they're wiser than, you know, a lot of the folks that have been leaders for you know decades now in business because they really understand this value of social good and being attached to something that is bigger than themselves that they can give back to that gives back to the world so if you were to give a message about ethics to those young people who will be our future leaders one day kevin what would that be
1: um i would i would absolutely say that you know, I applaud your interest in um, in working for companies that um, seek out the highest good. Um, I think that's um, very laudable. I think everyone should do that. Um, my biggest problem with the younger generation right now is the so-called cancel culture. And that is, a, that is, to me, that's totally unethical. Cancel culture is unethical. If someone disagrees with you and you try to silence them, that's a lack of respect. I'm a huge believer in respect. That's part of values-based um, ethics is respect, and you have to be able to give respect to even those that you may have a disagreement with. So I would say, you know, just be more tolerant of other people that you work with. Other people are not going to share the same thoughts that you share. Just mean be really more tolerant of that, but to the extent that you're reaching out and trying to create a better society, then I applaud you for doing that. But by the same token, look look at what you're going to do to the person that's next to you as well.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. I think that's a really good message. And that whole cancel culture thing, man, it's so rough. It's so unkind. I We're hearing less about it now. Maybe it's just because I'm the age I am. But I do remember hearing a lot about it when it was first sort of, you know, I say this with air quotes, kind of popular. I mean, it's a horrible thing to be popular, but I don't hear about it as much anymore. So maybe, just maybe, Kevin, people are starting to realize that it's not the way we treat one another. Just yeah. when somebody disagrees with us, right? We've got to open our our ears, our hearts, our minds, be objective, let that small self, that ego self go. And that's the kindest thing we can do, even if we disagree.
1: Well, I remember, I mean, I grew up in the 60s and early, in early 70s. And if you were bullied back then, we didn't have any of this electronic. Um, there was no, no electronics at all. I remember yeah. seeing my first um, calculator. That puts me how old it is. I used to, you know, um, use a slide rule in order to do my calculations. That's how old I'm at. I'm at you know, so um, but back then, if you bullied somebody, it was a physical thing. It was yeah. something you were you were picking a fight. That's very personal. Now uh, with all the electronics out there, these kids, of just Generation Z, they grew up with cyberbullying, bullying, bullying um, you know over the internet, over their phones, yeah, um, over their computers, where they would be able to maintain some anonymity, so that. Um, they won't be known. It's a lot easier to bully somebody if nobody knows that you're bullying them. That you're the bully. Yeah. Now, who wants to be known as the bully? I mean, I certainly wouldn't. I was never the bully when I was younger. But um, you know, a lot of these kids um, grew up in this um, in this culture of um, of shaming people and and bullying people using electronics, using modern that's modern technology warf- warfare. And so I think as they've gotten older, they've just taken it from, you know, Facebook to Twitter to um, on the campus and shouting down speakers and trying to prevent people from expressing their opinions. And, you know, um, then they get um, so bent out of shape, they got to have safe spaces. That's kind of ridiculous. You know, you know, grow a little skin, will you?
0: They're creating their own solitary confinement, aren't they?
1: They really are. Yeah, the world doesn't Lesson really operate be- that way, does it?
0: No, it doesn't. The world does not operate that way, and it's not just the young people. There are people our age as well who who operate in that same bullying kind of way. I mean, we've had evidence of that over the last many years. Of you know, and it's 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 rampant. People in power, um, people who are famous, using these platforms to propagate messages of division and hatred and et cetera. So there's a lot for everyone to be learned there about value-based ethics. Kevin, thank you. Thank you for all of that. So I have, I have one last question for you today. and, And it's a question I ask everyone who joins me. It's kind of a big one. Are you ready? Okay. So as you think about the big world that we share, the whole planet, all the people, what do you think the greatest possibility is for kindness as we consider our future? The
1: biggest possibility for kindness? Yep. I think kindness is so key for us to be able to express our love of one another and of ourselves. As I started off saying, you cannot be, um, you cannot be kind to another, one, another person unless you're kind to yourself. And if you spread the word of kindness, then what you're really doing is you're spreading love. And this world can only work on love. I'm a big believer in the Course in Miracles where only love is real. And everything else is an illusion. And part of that expression of love is kindness.
0: Yep. Yep. That's great. That's a beautiful, beautiful way to wrap up today, Kevin. I appreciate you. So, if people want to get in touch with you, um, have you come speak? Have you come work with their companies? How can they find you and business ethics advisors?
1: Yeah, I am very easy to find on LinkedIn. But I'm at J Kevin Foster. My first name is John, but I go by Kevin. But on LinkedIn, it's J. Kevin Foster. That's how you get to know me from the other um, Kevin Fosters. <laughs> and um, the company is BusinessEthicsAdvisors.com. So go to BusinessEthicsAdvisors.com. And I am simply Kevin at BusinessEthicsAdvisors.com. So just remember <laughs> BusinessEthicsAdvisors.com and Kevin Foster, and you'll be able to find me. I'm not that hard to find.
0: Kevin, thank you so much for taking time out of your day for sharing a story that I know was really difficult and transformational for you at the same time. Thank you for the way that you are bringing kindness into business through your work with value, values-based ethics. I appreciate you so much and I'm so happy that you chose to join me here on the Think Tank today.
1: Well, thank you very much, Cole. It was, uh, it was really a um, pleasure to be with you today. You asked a lot of great questions and I'm very happy to be able to share my experiences with your audience.
0: Thanks for the ripples you're sending out to the world. Keep it up, Kevin.
1: Thank you very much, Cole.
0: And that's the end of the show today, everybody. Thank you so much for listening and for lending me your ears. If you've liked what you've heard, please go to wherever you subscribe to your favorite ear listening stuff. Leave me a review. Send me a note. Let me know what you think. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on LinkedIn at Cole Baker Bagwell. And if you'd like to learn more about my work and my why, and much, much more about kindness, you can visit my website at coolaudrey.com. Before I sign off, let me give a big special thanks to the folks at Sounds Like an Earful for their song, Brand New Day, that I use for my intro and my outro. Until next time, take good care of yourselves take good care of one another. And remember most of all, everybody to be kind.